Our text this evening is the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. If you'll turn with me, if you have your Bibles, Matthew 18 at verse 21, a very familiar parable found only in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 18 at verse 21. The context here is that Jesus has uh, talked about reconciliation and certain steps to take if your brother sins against you and you're to go to him and so forth. And then we pick up the narrative in verse 21 of Matthew 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity... For him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the holy and inerrant word of God. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Most of us were astounded by the forgiveness shown by the Amish families of the Nickel Mines schoolhouse shooting about a decade ago. What a tragedy. Yet we saw on the front pages such remarkable grace and forgiveness. That certainly is an extreme example of forgiveness, isn't it? But there are countless occasions for forgiving others in all of our lives, in every marriage, in every family, an extended family, at your work or school, in your neighborhoods, with friends and even very close friends, in the church as well and even with co-workers in Christ's service. In fact, the rule of thumb is the closer you are with someone, the more you rub shoulders or work together, the more you will need to be forgiving one another. Not just seven times, Jesus says, but 77 times. And certainly he wouldn't say on the 70, 78th time, then you're free. No. This is a parable that Jesus tells that's a parable really about our hearts. It's a parable of what I would call heart forgiveness. The attitude of heart forgiveness is something that every Christian is called to by Christ. Whether or not there can be, 
what I would call relational forgiveness or reconciliation. Whether or not the other person is repentant, and really the kind of forgiveness that precedes this illustration is the kind that requires repentance. Repentance is required for reconciliation. I'm not going into that or whether a Christian should ever uh, pursue a legal course or things like that. I'm not talking about restitution. Uh, Heart forgiveness, I believe, is really just another way of describing the biblical call to love our enemies, for blessing those who persecute you. We could say doing good to those who hate you and praying for those who abuse you, Luke 6, 28. Heart forgiveness is about your heart before God. And if you're ever going to move into relational forgiveness and reconciliation and those kinds of relational dynamics, then you must begin with your heart or you will get nowhere in the relational restoration. And the only alternative to heart forgiveness is in the realm of anger and resentment leading to bitterness and vindictiveness. It's either heart forgiveness in a Christ-like way or in another way you will be consumed by bitterness. And the wonderful news of the gospel is that through the love of Jesus poured into our hearts through the forgiveness Jesus our Savior gives and the new life we have in him, we can more and more have the mind of Christ and this kind of heart forgiveness and love for our enemies even toward those who sin against us. You might think of this heart attitude of forgiveness as the grace of long-suffering. In fact, in verse 26, when the servant of the king falls on his knees and implores him, and he says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything, the word that's used there is the word that's used for long-suffering. Long to get hot, slow to get hot is the actual idea of that word. Someone has described it this way, the inner power to bear injuries without meltdown. I think that's a picturesque way to show it. In other words, someone sins against you, but you do not melt down. You are not shaped by that offense. You do not lose your inner joy. You do not let this sin lead you to sin or to do wrong in return. It's not a passive thing. It's a very active thing. It's really, we would say, in the realm of of an active choice. It's a way of freedom in a world where sins and offenses are an inescapable part of all of our lives. Let me say this before we go any further. It is very easy for most of us to say, oh, I hear you saying that, but it's really not a problem for me at this point in my life. I'm not filled with resentment I'm not controlled by a spirit of revenge. Of course, I hope so-and-so is listening to this. I know someone who really needs to hear this, but not me. Maybe I'll get them to CD or tell them to go online. Hebrews 12:15 says, says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Here the analogy that's used in that verse is that of a root. We know what that's like. You cut down a tree. Maybe some of you have pear trees in your yard. I just don't like all summer I've got to go around cutting those little shoots at the bottom of my pear trees. It's uh, getting hard to bend down as I age. But if you cut off a pear tree, I'm sure this would happen. You'd have those little sprouts growing up because the root's still there. 
That's the analogy. That's the, that's the thing that's in the author's mind. Bitterness and anger and unforgiveness are all closely linked together, and these things are like a root system in our hearts. They work in hidden ways. We tend to minimize our anger. We tend to say, it's not there. I don't have that. We're not aware of it. Someone really hurts us deeply, and we say, that's no longer affecting me. What my husband or what my wife did to me, what my parents did to me years ago, or what that Christian friend did to me, or what the church did to me. It's very easy to minimize just how angry we continue to be and how much the root is still there affecting us in some way. And unless this incredibly thorough act of forgiveness that we are about to talk about here happens, that anger passes into you and starts to twist you and harden you and makes you cynical or inflicts you with a form of self-pity that goes on and on. It's that root of bitterness. And Hebrews says, beware of that. And so this parable speaks to that heart issue. What do we learn then from this parable about this amazing grace of forgiveness? I want us to see three, three things. The first is forgiveness means that you bear the emotional cost of a wrong done to you instead of seeking revenge. Forgiveness means that you bear the emotional cost of a wrong done instead of seeking revenge. And the point here is whether or not there's relational forgiveness, whether the person repents, I'm not talking about that whole subject. We could spend a couple of sermons on that. We teach a whole class on the book, The Peacemaker, which has a lot of good practical advice. I'm talking about your duty before God to forgive those who sin against you in your heart. Whether or not there's relational forgiveness, I'm making a distinction between the two. I think it's a scriptural thing. I'm talking about the kind of attitude that Stephen in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7 had, when as he is being stoned to death, he prays for God not to hold this sin against them. And of course, it's exemplified by Christ on the cross. In our parable before us, the king canceled the debt. And really, the key or the crucial point in interpreting this parable, I believe, is the size of the debt, of the size of the two debts. This is no ordinary, you know, um, loan that a neighbor makes to a friend. This is a 10,000-talent debt. An ordinary laborer in that day earned a talent or a talent and a half a year. So if we do the math, 10,000 talents, if you take an ordinary laborer our day, maybe $40,000, my math is $400 million dollars. That's not a loan that you give your neighbor when he leans over the back fence and asks if he can borrow $5. It's it's a massive debt. So probably this is not some poor slave or a household servant. This is probably the idea behind it. It might be is this, this king has a servant who's a high official, and through corruption or maybe severe mismanagement, he's managed to lose $400 million. Just think. Even in our day, that would be a lot for mismanagement. This is possibly a level of debt that would have put the king's very kingdom in jeopardy. I'm reading into it at that point, but just think of the size of this. And so at this great cost, this king 
cancels the debt. And this represents the very heart of forgiveness. This is what I'm talking about in our first point. To forgive is to bear a cost in your own heart and soul. You do not take revenge. You bear the cost in and of yourself. Now, we're going to see that the only way to do this is through Christ. You don't have the strength to do that in and of yourself. But think of the cost of this injury to you as an emotional debt. You do not make the other person pay this down. Rather, you pay it down in your own heart. Turn it around and think of this point this way. What is the natural way of handling this emotional debt? What is the world's way of handling what we would say would be this cost? Well, it's usually to make the other person, the person who hurt you, pay for it in some way. There are overt and covert ways that we all do this at different times. Directly, we could be harsh to that person, be cold to them, try to hurt them, attack them in some way, avoid them. Those are all ways that we try to make someone else pay. Or the more indirect way, we can gossip about them or slander or ruin their reputation or maybe just despise them in our hearts and look at them as someone who's beneath us. I think a lot of the political discourse in America has ended up at this point. Why do we do that? Because when I inflict pain on that other person, it somehow makes me feel better. Um, And if I see that person hurt, then somehow the emotional pain from my hurt is lessened. Isn't that the general idea? But the result of this way of dealing with that cost is that you cannot help but be changed by that. The evil passes into you. You are melted down and reformed. There is distortion. There is hardening. There is creation of self-pity and a bitter spirit. Instead of making the other person pay the emotional debt, what I'm talking about, this hard attitude of forgiveness that Christ teaches us, means that you pay this cost yourself. That's what this king did. He absorbed the debt. And we know that certainly signifies Christ forgiving us of our great debt. Well, how do we do that? Practically, every time you want to rehash the past with that person, you don't. Now, if you're going to actually talk about things and there's going to be repentance, that's another whole thing. But I'm talking about the counterproductive ways that we tend to do this. Every time you want to rub their noses into what they did or be cold and shut them out and talk about them to someone else in a negative way, every time you see them doing well in some way, maybe this is even in our own imagination, don't we do this? If somebody who's hurt us is somehow having a hard time, I mean, I hate to admit to this, but that might make us feel good. Maybe we can think about that with political figures. If they're not doing well, then that makes us feel good. Prove how really bad they are. And I'm saying to count this cost means we don't do that. When we see those tendencies in our hearts, we go to Christ. We turn away from them in repentance and looking to Christ. And instead, we actually begin to bless them we begin to pray for their spiritual well-being as we count that cost. It's a radically different way than the world deals with these kind of things. It's very costly, and it's only done through Christ. But if we continue to do that, 
then the emotional pain and anger will eventually go down. How long will it take? Depends on how great the sin was. You may be working on it for days or months or in great instances of sin for years. But when you pay the debt this way, it doesn't twist you inside. And really, it's the only way that you're truly free in Christ. And there's this triumph of Christ-like love. So our first point is forgiveness means that you bear the cost instead of taking revenge. Secondly, this kind of forgiveness requires a Christ-like compassion for the other person. It begins with Christ-like compassion. It's interesting that in verse 27, when Jesus talks about the king, he introduces it with this phrase, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Out of pity. Elsewhere, it's often translated in the Gospels, he had compassion. And it's a phrase that's often used for Jesus. Frequently, Jesus would see the multitudes and would see them as sheep without a shepherd, and he would have pity, have compassion on them. That's Christ in his mercy and his love. How did Jesus have such great compassion for the multitudes and for us? Fundamentally, it was by identifying with us, even coming incarnate to the earth. What a great massive step of stepping down to identify with us. And then throughout his earthly life, and even now, he identifies with us. We are his brothers and sisters by what he did. You see, when someone hurts you, the very natural reaction is to stress your differences from that individual. That person is so different from me. That person is so bad. To have pity or to have Christ-like compassion means that instead, you make a conscious decision to identify with that person. You humble yourself in your own mind and love that person by really trying more to focus on the commonalities. And really, there's always the commonality of our remaining sin, isn't there? Unless we choose to neglect that and not see it. Someone has described it this way. When someone injures us, we tend to make a caricature of them in our minds. In other words, the worst features are made big, you know, I should have brought my Trump wig, hair wig up here to demonstrate this. But the other year, Patty and I went to one of my high school class reunions, and there was somebody who was an artist in our class, and you know, I won some kind of prize and got my caricature dumb, done. I really would have preferred not to win the prize. It only took him five minutes to do that because I looked at it and thought, no, that can't be me. I looked more bald, and my forehead looked real big, and my eyes and ears looked funny. I just thought... I think I put it under our bed and it's still sitting there somewhere hidden away. I don't know why I even say, saved it. But caricaturing someone emphasizes the worst features of them. That's not compassion. That's not love. That's not identifying with them. We reduce them to what they've done to us. We do not see them as complex human beings. We do not look at their sin and failure in light of all that they are. And that, by the way, that's not how we tend to look at ourselves. We see ourselves as complex. We see when we sin and 
weaknesses and things we do wrong, and we understand, well, that's not all that I am. I'm weak there, but I'm also strong here. And the reason we do that is because we like to justify ourselves. Or we do it out of our pride. And someone sins against us, and we don't identify with that. We react the opposite way and say, I would never have done that. And so to have compassion, to identify with them, is to love them. And maybe even try to make better assumptions about them, not jump to conclusions about how wretched they are, to have the judgment of charity. I love that piece of advice. I don't know where I got it years ago. Whenever it comes to sin, we need to be charitable toward others and hard on ourselves. We tend to turn it around. We're charitable toward ourselves, and we're hard on others around us. And the king... He could have assumed that this uh, official or servant um, did it out of corruption. That would have been the worst thing to jump to. The fact that he forgave him, we don't know. We're reading into the story when we talk about this. We think, well, maybe the king just tried to assume it was just mismanagement or incompetence, and he let him off the hook. He let him go for this $400 million debt. And here's the question for us. How can we have experienced the love and compassion of Jesus Christ in his cross and resurrection and not show the same compassion to others, to our brothers and sisters, to our fellow sinners? Forgiveness requires a Christ-like pity and compassion. And that brings us to our final point. True forgiveness is ultimately the fruit of the supernatural grace of God. There are many ways to bring about a form of morality or virtue in one's life. We could be constrained by external things. The speed, uh, speeding sign out on the street here uh, limits how fast we go. Maybe those signs we used to see years ago, don't do drugs. Or we might see something like, uh, I'll ruin my life if I do that. Or everyone I, life, I, I love in my life will be put to shame if I do this. Those are external constraints. But the kind of radical forgiveness that Jesus is calling his disciples to in this parable is only the result of a heart changed by the grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel. It's not simply a heart that's constrained externally. It's a heart. This kind of forgiveness comes from Jesus Christ alone. The message of the Bible is not, you must will yourself to be good and do good. The message of the Bible is, you need a new heart. You must be born again. Forgiving others from our hearts involves following Christ's example, yes, but it involves much, much, much more. It it requires a heart changed by the cross of Jesus Christ, a heart changed by the regeneration of the Spirit, by the new birth through the gospel. What was so wicked about the way this servant treated his fellow servant? Well, we all know the answer. It's so obvious, hits us in the forehead. He had just been forgiven the $400 million dollars. And now he can't forgive this friend for the $10 he owes him. 
The king's example was, was obviously not enough for him. Obviously, this servant, this first servant, clearly had an evil heart. There was no change within. And this picture is almost humorous of him choking the man, even as he walks down the steps from the king's throne room. And that's the apparent reason why the king did what he did. He handed that man over to the jailers. A hard attitude of forgiveness is not something that we can simply will into being by our own strength. And don't we all know that? We know that enough from the times of having to forgive others or being sinned against. We need a heart made new by the experience of receiving the love of Jesus Christ in our hearts. And so it's instructive that at the end of Ephesians 4, Paul commands us, according to the Lord's word, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as in God, Christ forgave you. And then it goes on, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Forgive as dearly loved children. That's the key. As dearly loved children, Colossians 3, be patient, bear with one another. All of those commands about Christ-likeness. Do you know by faith in Jesus Christ that you are a dearly loved child of God? Have you come to receive Jesus Christ in the gospel? If not, then the call of God is for you to receive him, to trust in him, to give him your life that you would have that new heart that more and more is able to bear this kind of cost when people sin against you, to have compassion on them, and to actively choose to forgive them. If you do not know Christ, that's what you're called to do. And if you do know Christ, and you have been wronged by someone, and that will happen often in this world, then continue to remember Christ's love. This servant was acting like a king. He was setting himself up as a judge. And the solution for you and for me is to really behold and meditate on the king who came as a suffering servant. Jesus Christ came knowing he would pay the cost, that he would pay the debt. And we know that he did. Look at what Jesus Christ has done. Receive it by faith. Receive him by faith. And he will work in your heart the long-suffering and the true forgiveness that he alone grants. Our Father, thank you for the surpassing love of Christ. We want to pray with the Apostle Paul that we might know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Oh, Lord, we need that in our everyday lives. We need that in the circumstances of this week. We need it in our families and marriages. We need it in our workplaces. We need it in the church. We think of the terrible problem that divisions play in the church of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would make us a people who look to Jesus Christ, who see the calling of the gospel to love our enemies to love those who are acting as our functional enemies, even this week. We may not be being actively persecuted for our faith, but Lord, for those in each of our lives that may be the difficult people to love, give us this grace of compassion and forgiveness. 
through Jesus our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.